Hey, hey, Marcus. Hello, uh, Marcus. Marcus isn't here right now, Scott. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Uh, uh John. Yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, I'm hi. I'm John Arminio. Uh, oh. <laughs> hi, hi, John Arminio. Uh, do you like popcorn? I love popcorn. Do you like eschatology? I I love predicting and studying the the end of the world. Oh, that's awesome. Welcome to a an occasional uh version uh side quest side story of Zebras in America called Popcorn Eschaton. I am half of Zebras in America, Scott Thorough, and joined here with friend of the show, John Arminio. Uh how you doing, bud? Oh, I'm doing great. Um I've been looking forward to this for a while and I'm excited to get get into these um incredibly deep spiritual movies with you yeah so to get to give our listeners a a little bit of backstory we were recording a on a different podcast a couple weeks ago talking about the gospel of saint gospel according to saint matthew on shoot the piano player and i was like hey john that i think it would be pretty cool if we did a podcast about religious movies, you know, because Marcus and I on Zebras in America have done movies about everything and about spirituality and stuff. But Marcus isn't as interested in some of the deeper meanings of of religious cinema to the point that it seemed that John and I were. And then, John, you wrote me a letter, a literal letter. Yeah, uh, you had suggested it. And I didn't really know how to take it at the time because I just know how busy you are. I didn't know if you'd want to take on another podcast. But the more I thought about it, the more I really sort of fell in love with the idea. And so I, I wrote to you to, to express that. Right. You wrote, me, you wrote me a literal letter. You didn't yeah, write yeah. me an email. You, you took a pen and you wrote it down. And I was moved by this. Oh, thank you. So why don't you, for our, for the Zebras listeners that may not know who you are, because, well, our Zebras listeners should probably, probably know who you are from the great mail that you've sent to Zebras in America, but why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, I'm John Arminio. Uh, I'm a fervent uh, movie lover. Um, I work at a place called Comics Connection in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, where I, I pedal comic books. Um, I am also a Catholic, um, a metalhead, um, a, a leftist, and I sometimes feel the cognitive dissonance that being in those categories, um, results in. I've had Catholics tell me I'm not Catholic. I've had metalheads who are atheists tell me I'm not Catholic. Um, so I feel the sort of tension in movies like Last Station of Christ, um, pretty, pointedly and so it, it's sort of driven a lot of my cinematic journeys and so that's part of why I'm, I'm looking forward to to this podcast yes and for the listeners this is popcorn eschaton this is a side quest the side story of zebras in america zebras in america will be back at some point where we're the show still exists obviously but this is going to be an occasional romp where john and i talk about religious films and talk about their contexts 
And for our first episode, we're going to talk a little bit about The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese and Mary, uh, 2005, Abel Ferrara. Two, two films by Catholic Irish-American directors uh, in, a, in an alternate universe. I think Abel Ferrara could have been as big as Martin Scorsese, but he wasn't, and that just is what it is. And yeah, we're just going to talk about these movies, and, and future episodes will be where we talk about one or two movies, talk about the meanings and context we derive from it, from the lens that we both are spiritual people and both leftists. I like how, John, you were like, you said leftist almost like a little softer than the other ones. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just think, um, I don't know, I, I've had trouble sort of identifying my uh, political orientation, um, e even though my, my instincts are, are always to the left. Um, but I, like uh, Nikos Kantostakis, uh, the author of the book, Last Temptation of Christ, you know, he was um, a fervent anti-fascist in the 20s. And so he went to uh, the Soviet Union because that was a source of a lot of anti-fascist force in that era and he quickly grew disillusioned <laughs> from um uh from that style of government and so spent a lot of his life in non-communist um leftist uh conclaves uh, I'm, I'm not saying that my journey is any in any way similar to his but i'm i'm just sort of um like a lot of the the works that maybe we're going to look at i'm sort of always struggling for identity, I, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't trust people that are like, oh, I'm, I know who I am and that's it. Uh, you know, even if you listen to Zebras in America, you can sort of pinpoint me growing, going <laughs> further to the left. I'm sure if you've listened to any podcasts I'm on, I mean, right now I'm currently co-hosting a podcast about deep space nine from a socialist lens so called southpaw deep space nine on the southpaw network so i think it's pretty clear where my politics lie and i find it very interesting the disconnect sometimes between people who believe in the power of jesus christ whether that be from a religious point of view or just a philosophical point of view or whatever, and then somehow interpret him as being anything other than a radical leftist. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, my political identity is definitely descended from the fact that I, you know, went to mass every Sunday from the ages of, you know, like one to the time I was a teenager. Um, you know, oftentimes begrudgingly because man, it's the weekend. I want to sleep in, but you know, th that that message of, like, it is our duty to care for the poor and, and the sick and that, um, you know, the, the powers that be do not have control o over us and that, like, rich people can't get into heaven. Like, those are so ingrained in me. Um, but if I were to say to a lot of people who, you know, aren't religious, like, my political beliefs are descended from at least partially from my experience with Catholicism, I think they would have a very 
different idea of the kind of politics that I was talking about. Right, which is sort of hilarious when when I think of, you know, some of the most prominent religious leftists in America, I guess probably Martin Luther King Jr. or Cornell West. Yeah. Both Christians. Yeah, and, you know, the, the American Civil Rights Movement is completely inter intertwined with um, the... The, the religious with religious organizations in, in the United States. Um, so, yeah, I, and, you know, even my environmentalism is is tied to like religious philosophy that, you know, if God gave us this earth uh, to to prosper on, maybe we should mm -hmm. take care of it. Right. I'm I mean, I'm I'm elapsed. A Jewish person, I I, I, def, I define my beliefs mostly as I'd say like, you know, I like I like being Jewish, but I also mostly uh, really identify with with Taoism right now. But you know, in the Jewish tradition, we have like six holidays that are about the earth. Mm -hmm. We have we have we have one for the trees we have one for the fruit we have one for the environment like there's a lot of environmentalism cooked into um a lot of religions and it was actually cornell west when i was when i was sort of realizing oh i think i'm some sort of a leftist i'm not sure and but but i i thought i couldn't be a leftist and and believe in god or you know and and he introduced the term uh, non-Marxist, socialist, communist, and I was like, oh right, we don't have to be one thing. We don't have to to exist. And I think there's this very interesting exist existence. I don't know what it's like in the metalhead world, but I definitely see that in the leftist circles I'm in. Some people are nervous to be like, oh yeah, I believe in God, or like, oh I'm like really into this spiritual stuff, you know. But, you know, I don't, I think, I think in inclusivity breeds creativity and uh, greater ability to grow. But we're, we're here today to discuss the films, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ and, by Martin Scorsese and Abel Ferrara's Mary. Would you like to describe a little bit The Last Temptation of Christ for the the people listening who haven't seen the movie? Sure. Um, yeah, The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, released 1988, starring uh, Willem Dafoe's Jesus. It was a uh, long-time uh, dream project of Martin Scorsese. The seeds of it go back to um, actually when he was making Boxcar Bertha and Barbara Hershey first gave him the novel. Uh, it took him a while to read it, um, and pre-production finally got started in 1983, uh, when it became clear how controversial the film was going to be, the studio pulled out. Um, five years later, uh, Scorsese finally got the ball rolling again, but on a greatly reduced budget. And using all the techniques that he learned um, with Roger Corman, he did a sort of run-and-gun, uh, very cheap, 
with all his friends shoot in Morocco and adapted the supremely existentialist bit of spiritual philosophy that was uh, Kansas-Dakis' 1955 novel. Which is sort of a retelling of the the end of Jesus's life and a choice that he's given. Yeah, the uh, one of the uncredited screenwriters, uh, Jay Cox, who was a longtime friend of Scorsese, described it as um, the supreme temptation of God is indulging in the life that we all take for granted. That's sort of the central theme of the, of the film. Right, and it, it's a movie, the first time I saw it, I didn't like it at all. I was like, what is all the hoopla? Mm-hmm. I was, I think I was 18 years old. I had just gotten, um, I had just gotten Netflix. You remember Netflix when it was DVDs that they sent to your house? Yeah, uh, that was uh, actually a revelation to me because I was not beholden to whatever <laughs> Blockbuster felt like stocking. Blockbuster, uh actually banned last station of christ so it was not able to be rented right yeah yeah i mean i would like to do an aside and and just say that i guess for me who grew up in new york city where there were lots of awesome mom and pop video stores i don't opine for blockbuster like people are doing right now in the zeitgeist i i think of blockbuster as a as a corporate entity that censored movies sort of controlled the canon and destroyed some of the shops that I grew up with. Yeah, they were a, a moribund corporate entity that both censored um, movies and was not able to adapt with the times and we do not need to mourn its existence. I don't, I don't, and I, one thing that I think both of us would agree on is that corporations are not your friends. Yeah. They don't care about you. And, you know, we don't need to defend, we don't need to defend, defend billionaires and we don't need to defend corporations that do not care about our lives. And so I started, I started doing DVD Netflix because the, the movie stores in the late, this, this must be 1999, the year 2000, a lot of the rental places were closing or I would have to go to, I would have to leave my neighborhood to rent a movie, which sort of defeated the purpose. And DVDs were really expensive. So I just got Netflix because there were all, you know, before before the comforts of the internet that we have now, you couldn't download a movie. You know, one of the movies that we're talking about, Mary, is really difficult to find. And... Some people might have to, you know, search in places that are not, you know, you might have to download Mary because it's really difficult to find. It's not on any streaming platform except for ones that are connected to public libraries. So if you don't have a library card, you might have to do it. So imagine the difficulty of finding movies in 1999 if they didn't have it at the, at the library and the the only video store near you was a blockbuster that definitely didn't carry The Last Temptation of Christ. And everyone's telling you, you have to see this movie. It's so good. And I got the, I got 
Netflix pretty much to to get to rent Criterion Collection films. The Last Temptation of Christ, at least the last time I checked, was part of the Criterion Collection. Is it still part of the Criterion Collection? As far as I know, yes, it is. So I pretty much got DVD Netflix so I could rent Criterion Collection movies and and catch up on Martin Scorsese movies that I hadn't seen yet because he was one of my favorite directors when I was a young person. And now I'm more like, he's really good. It's It would be silly to be like, oh, Martin Scorsese doesn't make good movies. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, it's, it's very silly. But so the first time I saw it, I was like, this is one of the prettiest movies I've ever seen. So when you tell me that it was made on a, on a smaller budget, I'm like, wow, they did really well. Mm-hmm. Because it's gorgeous, the music is fantastic, the acting is great, but I was just bored. And then, now, it's a movie that I love, it's probably, probably, in, it's probably in my top five, Scorsese, it's probably number five. Oh, wow. Though, I'm not prepared to, to, to list my fav, my five favorite Scorsese movies right now, but... I'd say it's number five. I think it's really good. Yeah. And what what moves you about this movie? Um, I, I think it does say a lot about me as both a cinephile and a Catholic that this is the most viewed Scorsese movie uh, for me. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm so moved by you know I can feel the passion that Scorsese has for the subject matter. Um, I'm really enthralled by Willem Dafoe's performance. Um, he, he's not particularly a religious person himself, but I think his approach to to the character and his willingness to just go all in on this project, I think, is 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 pretty inspiring. Um, and I think the idea of struggling with Jesus as divine and uh, and human, I think, is so beautifully encapsulated by this film, and and the the struggle to, you know run from your own chosen path and i think um culturally especially with a, a movie like um the passion of the christ we get so especially as catholics we get so wrapped up in the death of jesus and and the physical pain that he went through um but it's also a pain that thousands of other people suffered under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. Um, and if you read accounts of what actually happened to people as they were crucified, it's it's horrifying, uh, as you can imagine, but just reading it in detail is just very affecting. Um, but I, I think what this movie also gets across is the sacrifice that Jesus as a human made to give up his own humanity. Um, for the sake of the people who were executing him. And I I've just find that so beautiful and, and also, you know, so troubling um, in, in an incredibly fascinating way. And I think with the, you know, Scorsese uh, as, as the director and, and Paul Schrader and Jay Cox adapting this work and with uh, the acting, I'm, I'm just sort of, totally enthralled by it and I first came across this movie in in college and it was actually probably one of the first DVDs I ever bought 
um, definitely my first Criterion movie. So it, it's a movie that I've been fascinated with uh, for a while. And it's interesting because Willem Dafoe is very much a popular actor that we talk about and and is in a bunch of Abel Ferreira movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a couple direct like a references to this movie in Tommaso. Oh yeah, because yeah, like he Which... he takes out his own heart in Tommaso. He gets crucified in Tommaso, and he says he's gonna yeah. burn, uh, destroy the temple, and rebuild in three mm-hmm. days in Tommaso. So it's it's just another interesting sort of like way you could connect Abel Ferrara and and Scorsese. Yes, and Abel for so Abel Ferrara made three movies connected with Willem Dafoe, Tommaso and these two other movies, they all are, uh, they are all intertwined. Like there's a movie within a movie in Tommaso and that is another movie, but I don't remember all the names. And unlike, you know, billionaire podcasters, we don't have someone to look up things. We just talk, we just vibe. I think this, you know? the movie within the movie that came out later is Siberia, I think. Yeah. And they also made a movie, they they made three movies yeah. together during that time. And there's also a movie that Abel Ferrar did with Willem Dafoe about the, the last day on earth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's really depressing. And people don't, re- people don't, many people may not know that Willem Dafoe sort of lost his career for a little while for doing the last temptation of Christ. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he's such an institution now, it feels, yeah, it, it just seems so strange to think of him having a fallow period, um, but certainly Scorsese did, um, after this movie, and until, and I think he had to make Goodfellas to really come back into the popular, uh, zeitgeist, um, but, but I think, you know, that also speaks to, Willem Dafoe's like self-sufficiency as an artist because you know he's he came up in theater and so if Hollywood doesn't want him he can just go do weird theater projects if he if he wants to yes and then he came back you know and with the Spider-Man movies Mm -hmm. and then now if you if you were to say oh did you know there were like 20 years where Willem Dafoe didn't work a lot you'd be like what that no no way well more like 10-ish years but whatever and you know uh, there was, there was a time where you just didn't touch this subject, especially, most especially if you tried to tell a story that delineated or went away from the popular narrative. Because, as we know, the the classic story of Jesus is virgin-born carpenter. Uh, disappears for much of his life. When he reappears as an adult, he has disciples, um, turns water into wine, and eventually is betrayed by his friend Judas and is crucified. He dies for our sins, and then he comes back a few days later and then goes to the heavens. And, you know, the this sort of story, the the virgin birth son of God, is a story that happens in myth, a lot um but in our modern culture he's this is the one that really stuck with us obviously and 
or maybe Spock in Star Trek three, but mostly Jesus. And when I was a young kid in Hebrew school, I was I I asked like, hey, can we learn the story of Jesus? Because because I went to Hebrew school and we talk about Jewish stuff. And I was curious because I knew that he was Jewish. And but I didn't know anything about him. And, and the way that we were taught was that he was, you know, a, a deeply spiritual person who care who cared about people and hung out with people that other people wouldn't give the time of day and and died for that and he's he's a I wouldn't say that I'm Christian because because I'm not because I because I just don't know but I very much relate to the character the person the the idea of you know taking care of our brother man and women and and all people people that also don't define themselves as men or women and being around people that are often shunned from society and having criticism for the money lenders, all of his values um, are consistent with mine. And I understand why they had, why they had to get rid of him at the time. Yeah, I mean, i I find his message, especially for the time and the place he lived in. So extraordinary because, you know, you know, he was going out to like lepers, like the people who were so, anathema to society that they were not allowed to live in town uh so he would go out to the people who you know were the most reviled you know he he cleaned the feet of the people who came to to worship him with his own clothes like he he preached a radical egalitarianism to both romans and um the the jewish aristocracy um in a time when might made right he preached you know love and and turning the other, the other cheek like it was such an extra extraordinarily philosophical break with like, like all standards of of morality at at the time and um and i find that uh the best adaptations of jesus's life get across that sort of bewilderment of, of some of the people that, that he comes across. Um, I think the um, Zeffirelli miniseries from the 70s gets across that pretty well. Um, but but I think the, the frustration that some of his apostles have is uh, embodied in this pretty well, especially with Harvey Keitel, because they expected a Messiah, they, they expected Moses with an ax in his hand to, for right. somebody to literally lead them out of bondage and destroy the Romans. Um, but as Jesus says in, in this movie, like if you destroy the Romans, there there's somebody else just that's going to come along later because, yeah, the Romans were not the first people to conquer Judea. Um, no, and I guess just speaking of of Judas and and Harvey Keitel's uh, uh, amazing performance in this, but one of the frustrating things about the controversy about Last Temptation is that so much of the the protests were about the the sort of sexuality of Jesus in the film um because if a spiritual being is tempted to become human one of the parts about all humanity is that there comes a a sexuality um whatever form that may take and and that was what really rankled 
conservative Christian elements in America, at least. And there were bombings in France in, in theaters. Um, so it wasn't just America. But, so it wasn't even the fact that, like, Judas calls Jesus a traitor in, in the movie. So it's not even any, any sort of actual blasphemy, quote-unquote, that the movie portrays. It's just like, oh, there's sex in a movie about Jesus, which just seems so R- hypocritical. Yeah. And the the temptation. Yeah. I, I don't think we can talk about the last temptation of Christ without talking about the temptation. Mm-hmm. Would you like to explain the sure. temptation? So, yeah, the temptation um, depicted in the movie and in the novel is that a quote-unquote angel comes to Jesus while he's on the cross and says, you've done your part, you've made your sacrifice, come and lead the life of a man. And so, you know, literal deus ex machina, Jesus is taken off the cross and is able to marry Mary Magdalene, um, have a child, um, Mary eventually dies, and Jesus then marries both Martha and um, Mary's sister of Lazarus. And eventually, as an old man in this vision, he's visited again by his apostles at the burning of Jerusalem, and they confront him with his own cowardice. And at that point, um, Jesus realizes finally how necessary his own sacrifice is and sort of asks God to put him back on the cross. And so this whole thing was a vision, but it's a temptation that, like, it's a vision of Jesus that is indelible to Kantostakis' novel and, and this movie, like, you... It's not something that, you know, you would ever see in any other adaptation, like Jesus living the life of pure humanity. Uh, and right. I think it, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable to even contemplate that. But it had to have been something that, you know, Jesus thought about. You know, one of the most famous scenes of the Gospels is Jesus crying as, he, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, like, take this cup away from me. I don't want to be crucified, you know, as his apostles are asleep, you know, a hundred yards away because they don't have the physical stamina to stay awake and pray with him. Like, it's such, it's it's a scene that, like, of loneliness that cries out to you from 2,000 years ago. And it, it sometimes shocks me how people can read that and not empathize with the human aspect of Jesus in that moment because right. even if he's not going to you know go off and marry Mary Magdalene and have kids I'm sure in that moment he's like can't I just like be a goddamn carpenter like my dad you know um, why do I have to lead this revolution and get nailed to a tree because of it um, and I think this movie is sort of the ultimate exploration of, of that wish right and I think it I don't know. I I think it creates a little. It's a it creates a tenderness mm-hmm. and it creates an understanding. And maybe some people think, oh, you shouldn't be able to relate to Jesus. But I think re- relation is sometimes the greatest gift we can have. And by having that humanity before his ascension, I just think is a very powerful narration device and. 
it hurts, you know, because as you're as you're telling me this, I'm remembering that when I was reading a couple esoteric books in my young 20s, um, something that a couple people talked about was that it was recorded that the only thing that Jesus cried for during his crucifixion was water. Because mm. as you're pointing out, crucifixion, which was a way that people were killed in the Roman Empire, is an incredibly painful way to die. And if you could imagine in the blaring sun, it would be quite terrible and you'd be thirsty. And when you tell me, when you were saying the things about crying, it reminded me of one of my favorite painters, call me basic, but Van Gogh or Van mm-hmm. Gogh is is one of my favorite painters, artists of all time. It's probably uh, Van Gogh, Francis Bacon, and Bruegel the Elder. And Van Gogh, who was deeply enamored by the life of Jesus, tried to, you know, be a man of God, tried to be uh, either a monk or, or a priest, or not, you know, he something of that nature. But he insisted on living like on the floor he's he insisted on sleeping on the floor and living with the beggars and living an actual pious life and people could hear him crying at night and his piousness and dedication to you know being on the same level of the people that he took care of made other people uncomfortable i which makes which also when i look at a lot of the modern pillars of of Christianity and prosperity gospel, I just go, how did this happen? You know, there's a really interesting um, bit in the, the novel, Last Temptation of Christ. Um, I, I'm, I started to read it. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a dense tome. I, I really like it, but it's just, you, you, it's not the book you can read 100 pages in a day. Um, but there's this, this interesting part where um, Zebedee, who is sort of the employer of a lot of the future apostles, as, as like he owns a bunch of fishing boats that they fish on, and he's saying like, "Oh, stop your whining, you know, whatever God desires is what's going to happen, you know, just be patient." Um, yeah, okay, there's a flood today, but tomorrow we will prosper. And Judas just like grabs him by his lapels and screams in his face like it it's okay for you to say everything's great and be patient you know you are a slave owner who are pushing these men into these boats and making them fish and they're starving and there's women wailing and trying to pick up grains from the ground that have been washed away in the flood so you shut the fuck up and and take your prosperity elsewhere and it's you know this is a book from the 50s and it, it's such like a, a a preordained repudiation of everything uh, prosperity gospel stands for so that that was a a fun read and i will make you fishers of yeah, men yeah, yeah. you know which is obviously but yeah i've i've never read the book but I just enjoy the, I don't know, I think, I think trying to understand and recontextualize religious figures 
can sometimes help create a deeper understanding and appreciation. And do you know what movie actually made me revisit the last temptation of Christ? What's that? You're going to have, you're, you wouldn't be able to guess. <laughs> well, why don't you try? Um, the suicide squad. <laughs> Amazing. <Okay>. No. <laughs> um, but I'm glad, I'm glad that, that you tried. Thank you. It was actually, it was the 25th hour by Spike Lee. Oh yeah. Yes. Because I saw it in the movie theater and have you seen the 25th hour? Uh, I have. It's been a while, but I remember liking it very much. Well, of course you liked it very much because it pretty much follows the same arc and storytelling devices of The Last Temptation of Christ, except it's about a drug dealer who's about to go to jail. But it has a very similar arc and it, and it has a temptation at the end of the movie where he's he's about to go to jail and his father offers to drive him away and he sort of sees himself living a whole entire life and i was like oh i saw this before in the last temptation of christ but i wasn't feeling that movie so much so maybe i'll I'll give it a chance and then i watched it again and i was like oh this movie's dope yeah so when you saw yeah what was it about your subsequent viewings of last temptation that that turns you around on it was it just reflecting after 25th hour or were there was it something else like within the movie itself it was a couple things so when i was when i had first seen the movie it was during a time where i was i i would never say that i was completely ever an atheist but i had moments so I had a moment where I was just like, I don't know. I I don't care. You know, how how could there be a God when there's such pain and devastation in the world? And then as I got older, I would go in and out of belief and my belief would grow. So then in my early 20s, I got into esoteric reading and you know, yeah, esoteric books and esoteric topics and different ver- different versions of Jesus and different mysteries. And so when I watched it, I just was more open to it. When I was younger, I was like, oh, why would I want to, you know, why would I want to know about Jesus? That's, yeah, um, that is very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um you know, I, I think just getting to, you know, our personal relationships with religion, um, you know, I, I have a very unique uh, circumstance in my family where my grandfather was a Catholic priest. Uh, so in the Catholic Church, um, if you are a widower, uh, once you've been legally emancipated from your children, you know, once they turn 18, you can then be ordained as a priest. And so that's what my grandfather did and so i have an unusually close relationship with the catholic church um and so for me religiosity is sort of um inextricable from from catholicism 
and I, I know that if I wanted to, I could just, you know, pick another <laughs> religious philosophy, but it, it's, it's still something that's always going to be a, a part of me. Um, but of course, that also comes with the, you know, egregious sins that the Catholic Church has committed for uh, its entire existence, not the least of which are the sex scandals um, that have plagued it for the last several decades. Um, and sort of my own, my own motivation to, you know, go to Mass uh, is definitely less now as an adult. But I think because of this podcast, it's made me think about maybe going, started going back. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, just another example of, or, or another way you know, my relationship with religion sort of waxes and wanes, I, I suppose. Yeah. And that was also, I remember when going back to Hebrew school and stuff was not really connecting. I was like, wait, how is, how is the Christianity guy, a Jewish guy, mm -hmm. you know? And then, you know, my, the Hebrew school teacher taught us, he, he was begrudging, but he eventually did. And then he was like, Oh, you know, the Last Supper was actually Passover. I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. And then my, I guess I revisited my, my spirituality probably like nine years ago. I was like, there is, there's no meaning to anything. You know, I was going through another, an existentialist phase. It sucked. And then I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to believe in something again because it just makes my life it'll make my life better and i i can fake it till i make it and and then i did and and i'm grateful for it um but i don't really i'll go to any religious sure. ceremony I, I haven't been to many in the past two years but uh you know your god and my god basically the same God, you know, us, everybody, you know, everybody's belief system is, is, is about something bigger than us. Yep. And that can mean so many things, you know, uh, what is like, what does namaste mean? Like the, the, the divine in me sees the divine in you, you know, that's yeah. pretty cool. And, and I'm hoping that the mission statement for this podcast is you know, like, I, w I know we have a couple of Jesus movies, to start out with, but I'm hoping to expand to, you know, Buddhist movies or, or Hindu movies or, or pagan movies. Uh, I'm, I'm not only fascinated by religion as an intellectual and scholarly topic, I'm interested in them spiritually, and I'm certainly interested in them cinematically. So I'm just really looking forward to, you know, whatever we, <laughs> we get into on this podcast. Yes, I have I have some ideas for how to, how to do that and I'm sure you mm. do too. And, and and we'll go with that and another movie I suggested that we that we talk about for our first episode was Abel Ferrara's 2005 mm. Mary which um I did again I did not realize that it was so hard to find. So I'm a little I'm I'm a little hesitant to go too deeply into it because consistent with my belief that in, in, in my leftism and my community building, I want 
these discussions to be somewhat accessible. But so what I'm going to say is if you can find the movie Mary 2005 by Abel Ferrara, I think it's a good movie. But would you like to say a little bit about it? um, Mary is about a movie about Jesus called This Is My Blood. And the furor created by it, it's directed by and stars um, Matthew Bedeen's character, uh, Childress. And he, at first, definitely, he's sort of a a classic Hollywood schmuck, um, obsessed with his own ego. Um, And he's very dismissive of uh, Juliette Binoche's character, Marie, who plays Mary Magdalene. Um, After the completion of filming she goes on sort of a spiritual quest and does not return to hollywood she stays in jerusalem and follows in the footsteps of mary magdalene and jesus and while this is going on uh forrest whitaker's character ted younger is doing a series of tv specials on the historical life of jesus and these um sort of spiritual seekers sort of collide throughout the course of the movie and what I, I think was really fascinating about the film is that th- their own spiritual journeys get much more genuine as the film progresses. Like, it's easy to see Marie as a difficult actress. Um, it's easy to see children certainly as, as like, an, you know, a, a shallow, publicity-seeking Hollywood star, and it's easy to see... Uh, Ted Younger as a, a philandering TV host. Um, but as the movie goes on, we, we get to see those those surface layers uh, reveal something more. And I guess one thing, you know, um, Matthew Dean's character was originally supposed to be Vincent Gallo. Uh, and I think the idea of Vincent Gallo accusing another actor of being difficult would have been sort of a, a delicious bit of irony. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I really appreciate you introducing me to this movie. I, I really enjoyed it. I found it really interesting. And you can sort of see the, the way that it can feel like a companion piece to The Last Temptation of Christ. Also, um, Abel Ferrara worked with Harvey Keitel as well, worked with Willem Dafoe. I mean... Um, most people have probably seen Bad Lieutenant, that movie, and The King of New York are probably the movies that he's most famous for. But he has he has a few classics, um, and I think something that I've talked to you about. I don't remember if if we've talked about it on record, but something I've noticed, particularly in Italian cinema and Italian American cinema, is that. Catholicism, whether explicit or implicit, is a character in most of Italian cinema. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, it's certainly there in uh, Abel Ferrara's work. I mean, in in Ms. 45, he has his character dressed in a nun's outfit to, to murder people. And it's not like there's other religious overtones in that film, at least explicitly, but it's an image that certainly appeals to Ferrara uh, instinctually. And obviously, Bad Lieutenant right. has an incredible amount of, of Catholic imagery. Yes. Um, Scorsese himself 
uh, seriously considered going into the seminary. Um, but yeah, I, I think, it, you know, it's, it's an inseparable aspect of Italian-American life, the, the relationship to Catholicism. And that definitely comes from the old country. But yeah, but also like Italian cinema, there is no cinema that feels as entrenched in some sort of spirituality as Italian and Italian American cinema and Catholicism. I, I don't quite understand how this is, but if you watch like Fellini movies or Bertolucci movies, or like, let's say you were to watch taxi driver and you go, what's the religion of the person who wrote this? Uh, well, not who wrote this, the person who directed this movie. Catholic. Yeah. I'd be like, Oh, yeah. Catholic. So not even like, the movies that are like explicitly religious, which th both directors have made. I mean, oh shit. What was that movie that Martin Scorsese made recently about um, missionaries that nobody saw? Silence. Really yeah, I love movie. that movie. Yeah. If it was made, if it was made by anybody else, it would have been a top 10 of the year, but it is such a minor work in the canon of, Martin Scorsese that most people haven't seen it and it's yeah, really good I, I mean in a shocking twist I love that <laughs> movie but yeah I highly recommend that one I, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. shock me at all um yeah I I I mean I totally agree with your observation but yeah I I don't really have an explanation because certainly the Irish have a relationship to Catholicism that I would say is, is just as strong, you know, and, and one that's very troubled considering the history Ireland has with England and the discrimination they faced when they came to America is pretty, you know, in line with the discrimination Italians faced and a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment in America at, at you know, during the 19th century and the, a lot of the 20th century as well. Um, so why is it so inseparable from Italian cinema and, you know, the Italian-American psyche? I I really don't know. Um, but I'm sure part of that is why I find myself in my own spiritual identity in, inseparable from my Catholicism. Um, I think Guillermo del Toro said that there's something like there's no such thing as a lapsed Catholic, only recovering Catholics. Um, nice. So yeah, yeah, I that's an incredible observation, Scott. But I, I don't have a good explanation. Right, because like I was just like even a cursory glance glance at like Irish cinema, it's not it's not quite as like obvious as. Italian cinema and Italian American cinema, and and France is historically um, a Catholic country too, and that's even less explicitly religious ca a canon. I mean, you you certainly have like Leon Marin and and Die Every Country Priest, but it it's not in like Godard's work or anything like that. You know, you know, right? No, not at all. In fact, a lot of those movies feel like irreligious in yeah. their own way. I mean, you do have like. Pia Lott's Van Gogh, which is like one one of my favorite Van Gogh movies. I mean, there's so many movies yeah. about Van Gogh. It's kind of weird. But, or even like, you know, my, my partner was helping teach uh, 
an Italian cinema class. So, so I had like caught up on a couple classics I'd never seen. Have you ever seen a special day? Really? By Ettore Scola starring, uh, Sophia Loren, uh, Marcello Mastroianni yep. and John Vernon. It's set like, it's about the day where, where Hitler and Mussolini okay. met. Well, that, that sounds very interesting. Well, it's, it's really interesting, but it's also about this housewife and, a neighbor because you know Mussolini had his whole thing was creating a gigantic Italian yep. family so you know there were awards given if you had lots of kids so this woman who's very poor and has all of these children said sends her husband and children off to go see this special day and so it's it's about like this subtext about a whole bunch of shit that happens during this meeting. And I was like, oh, wow. It's just everywhere in all in, in this, in, in the cinema, the, the Catholicism is just so profound, even though I don't, I don't actually know Mussolini's religious views at all. Um, uh, he's a fucking worm, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I was just, you know, I was just thinking like yeah, in, in Bicycle Thieves, you know, like it's it's a movie about, you know, a guy trying to make a living delivering packages. But there's a couple key scenes that just take place in a cathedral because that was like the gathering place of Italians. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so I uh, anyway, I'm definitely going to have to check out a special day. It sounds really interesting. Well, yeah, apparently Mussolini was an atheist, which doesn't surprise me with his fascism. But unlike, you know, Germany is still, there's a lot of atheists still in Germany from the turn. And a lot of people in France, you know, became less religious after Napoleon was like, was like, oh, well, when he took the crown smacked it off the Pope's hands and put it on his head and created like that sort of set the tone for France being a less religious country, even though you had the dictator of Italy, an avowed atheist somehow did not affect the Catholicism of the country. Yeah. And, and I guess that is, you know, one thing that is inseparable from Italian society is that like the Pope is in Rome. Um, and so, right. even though it is a technically a separate country, I think the idea that if you're in the capital of Italy, it's the most populous city, uh, they're just something inseparable from that culture. Like, you can see the Pope's house if you, you know, stroll around the city. So, I, uh, you know, I guess that would be one way or one reason for Italian-American cinema being so beholden to the cultural impact of Catholicism. True. You make some good points. And this, this is why we're doing this to, to, to uncover and talk and and discuss these things and, and use a couple movies as a jumping off plot to discuss and grow. And hopefully the listeners will, have some thoughts too and and see how they feel and we don't know how often this is going to be but we're going 
you know, our goal is to do it maybe like a, once a month or something, but we have some ideas mapped out for a few episodes. Um, but I feel, I, I feel good about exploring these things. Yeah, with me you. too. Um, and you know, it's like the two directors, uh, that we talked about, um, you know, just a few years after doing silent, no, I'm sorry, just a few years before doing silence, Scorsese did something like shutter Island, which is like a pure genre film. And, you know, Abel Ferrara, uh, spent a lot of his career in genre and, and exploitation. And I think, you know, there are two guys who love the fun of movies as much as they love the philosophical and intellectual side that a film can explore. So I'm hoping that we can also indulge in uh, both sides of, of this journey that we're on. I'd love that. Well, I think as we come to an end of the first episode of Popcorn Eschaton, I, uh, I wish you and everybody a, a great time and remember to be kind to each other and, you know, don't be mean to homeless people. For sure. <laughs>